Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today's message comes from the Old Testament reading of 1 Samuel, as you heard a few moments ago. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, caves. I don't know if you've ever been inside a cave or not, or seen one portrayed on TV, but caves are not usually known as being the best places to live at least for long periods of time. I mean, sure, it provides shelter from the elements, but you usually think about a cave being dark, cold, musty, right? a place that you go into to mine the resources that are inside, not to stay there and use those resources. It's more likely to be a place to die than a place to thrive. Granted, most of the time you hear about the, the first people on earth being cavemen. Right? Then again, you know, they're often not portrayed as being the smartest or the most advanced humans either. But we also know that the first people on earth were not cavemen, but they were gardeners. And maybe they dwelled in caves after being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Regardless, caves, not the greatest place to make your home. What they are good for is hiding. And that's what we see in the story of David today. Saul is seeking after David's life. And if you remember from last week, Saul was jealous and he was angry towards David. He was afraid of him because the Lord was with David and the Lord had departed from Saul. And because of this and because of David... After he had defeated Goliath, right, there was this song that had been made up about him. That he had defeated his tens of thousands, and, well, Saul had only defeated thousands. Which wasn't true, but it led to these murder attempts. Attempts that keep happening. Even though David has done nothing to deserve this treatment. And so finally, David flees to a cave. Because caves are good places to hide when someone wants to destroy you. However, it appears that while David is good at hiding, he's also good at being found by the right people. Since while he's hiding in a cave, not one but 400 people who are on his side join him. Must have been a large cave. Also, probably not the easiest thing to do is to keep 400 people quiet, right? In a cave, no less, with the acoustics you might think about, especially when you're being hunted. And just like David's men find him, Saul finds out the area that David is in, and David has to flee once again. And then he has to flee again, because Saul is seeking after David every single day. At one point, Jonathan, Saul's son and David's best friend, finds him. Jonathan shows his loyalty to him. He shows that he is not going to take the throne that would be rightfully his because his father is the king, because he recognized David as God's anointed one. Yet Saul still chased him, bringing 3,000 men after one little David. David ends up in another cave, in En Gedi, 
And Saul is so close to him that he goes into a cave that David is in to use the bathroom. And David sneaks up from behind him and just cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. David had the opportunity to kill Saul in that moment, and he didn't do it because he meant Saul no harm, which is what the people were telling Saul. To, this is your opportunity to take Saul out, the one who's, who's been hunting you, you, you. This is your chance. But David tells Saul after he leaves the cave that he was not out to harm him, even though he could have. And Saul understands, finally, that David isn't trying to harm him, that he did not repay Saul's evil for his own evil. Rather, he repaid evil with good. And Saul realized that David was going to be the future king. And so he asked David to promise not to cut off his family, his offspring, after him. And David agrees. And then Saul goes home on his merry way. But it doesn't last. It lasts for just a short time. And then he goes after David again. This lasts for around eight or nine years that David is on the run, that he is like a fugitive, even though he had done no wrong. In fact, he had multiple opportunities to take Saul's life, and he does not. Now, can you be in... Can you imagine being in David's shoes? Essentially running for your life for nine years with no end in sight as to when Saul will let up. Feeling like there's no hope on the horizon. You're living in the wilderness. You're hiding in caves like the ones in En Gedi. How would you feel? Would you feel hopeless? It's thought that Psalm chapter 13, the psalm that we read together today, was written during the years when David is being hunted without break, when he is exhausted, when he's depressed, when he feels like he cannot go on for another day, another hour, or another minute. So we read it already, but let's read it together again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? You're welcome to join me. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The psalm begins with a struggle and it ends with a song. But you can't get to the song without going through the struggle. Four times, four times in the beginning of this psalm, David says, How long? How much longer? How much more am I going to have to take, God? Have you ever felt like this? You know, Lord, I cannot take anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do if, if this thing doesn't get resolved, whatever that thing is. And maybe for you that this is a, 
a long, drawn-out sickness with the uncertainty of never getting better. Maybe it's a, a financial crisis. Your, your life savings come crumbling down to nothing and your future isn't in doubt. Maybe it's a lost, strained son or daughter that you've been praying for for years. Maybe it's an alcoholic spouse. Maybe it's an unsaved loved one that you've been asking God for years to make the, their heart a heart like David's, a heart, a, a, somebody after God's own heart. Maybe you've been pray, praying for some dysfunction that's in your family that makes you not want to be around them or them not want to be around you. Maybe it's a, a situation at work. You have a demanding or an unreasonable boss. Or you have a jealous or malicious co-worker that you have to work beside every single day. Or maybe it's like we talked about last week, right? That there are embellishments, exaggerations, lies that are being spread about you. Someone trying to tear you down, to destroy you, to destroy your life. And then you find yourself in the shoes of David, because everyone goes through it sooner or later. Some unresolved problem, some issue. And it seems like no matter what you try, there is no solution that you can see when you look into the future. And you have to live with this every single day. Feeling like your enemy, whatever that enemy is, is exalted over you. And so you go to the cave. You run from the problem. You run from your enemies. You run from your issues because it seems like a safe place. It seems like a place that you can get away to. It'll make all your problems go away because if your enemy can't find you, you have nothing to worry about. But it doesn't end. The cave isn't safe. It's only temporary. It's not where things go to live and thrive when you end up wishing for the sleep of death, wishing you were dead because of how bad this feels, and that if you were dead, at least that means that the struggle is finally over. Or you get into this place where you really know what you should do, but you just can't do it. You know that you should pray. You know that you should read your Bible. You know that you should go to church, but you just can't do it. It's like there's this rock or this big weight that's in your stomach. It just weighs you down. It prevents you from moving. It prevents you from doing anything. It prevents you from physically, mentally, emotionally checking in. Have you ever been there? I have. And I didn't want to just run away and hide in a cave. I wanted to quit everything. I wanted to walk away from my calling as a pastor. I wanted to walk away from life. If you've ever been there, you can understand the words of David. Sometimes when you're in it, it's also good to know that you're not alone. 
And in David, we see someone else that maybe as a biblical character we love, we respect, we see that they're honored by God. And David, he has the courage to say the kinds of things we often wonder whether or not we should be saying out loud. In David, we see that we're not the only one who struggles with issues. And sometimes when God delays in answering us, we feel like we're forgotten. How long will you forget me, Lord? And thinking that God has forgotten us is not an uncommon experience. David is the giant killer. He is a mighty warrior. He is a man after God's own heart. Yet he cries out, How long? How long, God? David was the king in waiting. He had been anointed as the future king. But it takes 15 years for him to actually become king. And so for many of those years, he is saying, How long will my enemy be exalted over me? David had the Spirit of the Lord upon him. He knew that God was on his side. Yet he still felt like he was in a losing battle. Even though he's the king in waiting. Waiting is not easy. How many of you go through feeling like there is no answer in your future? That this thing, that whatever you're going through is going to be a, a long-term challenge? How many of you think that God has forgotten you? But let me tell you, that is not possible. Years after David, God speaks these words to the prophet Isaiah. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. David doesn't just feel forgotten. He feels forsaken, that God has hidden his face from him, purposely turning his back on David. In this long, drawn-out struggle with Saul, David feels forgotten that God has forsaken him, and maybe even on purpose, that God has written him off his list, that he's erased his name from his mind. And maybe that's how you feel too sometimes, that God has forgotten you, that he has forsaken you, that he has hidden his face from you, purposely turned his back on you. That's exactly how Jesus feels on the cross. Now, he doesn't repeat the words of Psalm 13. He repeats the words of Psalm 22 when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you feel forgotten, when you feel forsaken, know that the one who hears your prayers, hears your cries, has been there and done that. And knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly how you feel. So when you cry to Jesus, he hears us. And he will never forsake us. And he will intervene on our behalf. We may feel forsaken, but we are not. And when God delays, when he delays in answering our prayer, sometimes we feel frustrated. Praying for things for months and months and years and years. And there's no answer. Do we forsake and abandon God just because of that? 
because he is silent? I'm sure that some people do. And now there are those that feel that when Jesus is on the cross, that as God forsakes Jesus, that the Father turns his back on him, right? That he hides his face from Jesus, similar to the words in the Psalms. Now, I still feel my personal opinion. Again, no proof wasn't there. God has not also not told me otherwise. But I'd like to think that God forsaking Jesus, Jesus saying those words of being forsaken, that abandonment, just means that God is not going to intervene on the cross. Right? That he's not going to prevent Jesus from bearing the punishment for our sins. That he's not going to stop Jesus from dying the death that we deserve for our sins. That he is not going to refrain from pouring out his wrath, the wrath that we deserve, on Jesus. That he is not going to take the suffering of hell that Jesus is enduring on our behalf and end it. God is going to make sure that it is finished to the end and that it ends in the death of his son because it was the only way to bring us forgiveness, to bring us eternal life. And Jesus makes sure it is finished too. And because God does this out of love and because Jesus is God, I just don't imagine God turning his back, hiding his face from this moment on the cross as if to not watch it happen, as if to not watch salvation being won for us. Jesus endured it to the end, and God endured seeing it happen to the end. He just didn't do anything about it. And that's the forsaking. That's what Jesus went through. Now, I've said before that you can imagine Jesus being on the cross and thinking of you, having your name on his mind as he's there dying. But imagine that in his hands, as the nails are driven through, that's where your name is engraved. Not just in his mind, but in his hands, right where the nails are. It's in the wounds of his death as he died for you, that you can clearly see that God has not forgotten you. And he does not forsake you. God forsakes Jesus on the cross so that he will never forsake you. He never leaves us or abandons us. Jesus was treated as a fugitive, even though he had done no wrong. And he is nailed to the cross as a fugitive. And just like David, Jesus finds himself in a cave. But it's only in his death, as he's buried in a tomb, a sealed-up cave. Because caves are good places for the dead. But sealed-up caves are also really good places where the dead come back to life. At least Jesus does. And it's in his resurrection where Jesus shows his love for us, his care for us, that he is always on our side, that he will fight for us and do everything possible to bring us forgiveness and salvation. Now, sometimes there's silence. But even in the silence, we still have God's word. 
He's given us his words in the Bible, and they contain all that we ever need to know the truth of who God is and what he's done for us and what he will do for us. His promises for us, his blessings for us. He gives himself to us in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, where in his sacraments, in these gifts, Jesus does the opposite of forsaking. He actually gives himself to us, gives us his very body and blood to strengthen us so that when our worst day comes, when we're in the heart of all of our struggles, that we have nothing to fear because he is with us. That we have nothing to be afraid of because he has overcome all things. And there is nothing stronger than him because all of our enemies have been defeated. And so what's left after the death and resurrection of Christ are the words of Psalm 13. I have trusted in your steadfast love My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He has dealt bountifully with you. This is most certainly true. Amen. Now the peace of God which passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.